This is Ed Gunger. Welcome to the podcast. This is our third session on the Apostles' Creed. Here's how the Creed goes. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's as far as we got last time. The next phrase is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. This is where the creed begins its third paragraph. It starts with our belief in God as Father and Creator. It moves to the rescue work of the Son, Jesus Christ. And here, in the third paragraph, it turns to the recreating work of the Holy Spirit, whereby we are actually made new in and through Christ. And what follows in the creed is the result of this recreating work of the Spirit. The church, which becomes a new community, forgiveness, new relationship, resurrection, new existence, and everlasting life, new fulfillment, is what follows after we say we believe in the Holy Spirit. All the result of the Spirit's activity. But first comes the profession of faith in the Spirit himself. But who is the Holy Spirit? The story of the Bible begins with the Holy Spirit brooding or hovering over the dawning of creation. It speaks of a chaos that's over the world or in the world. And even though there's chaos, the Spirit is there moving it toward Sabbath, the creation toward Sabbath or the place where all things are fulfilled, the place of rest. The Spirit, we find, is again present at the turning point of the ages when we see him brooding over the womb of the Virgin Mary in Luke 1. The Spirit rests on Mary's body in order to bring forth Jesus Christ, the new Adam, the beginning of a new creation. And the language of the creed is weighted with the idea that the work of this creative spirit is not yet finished. Now, this same spirit is brooding over the whole human race, working to bring forth a new human community that has been created in the image of Christ. The creed signals that the Holy Spirit is to be thought of in the same manner as the Father and the Son, in that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the defined third person of the Holy Trinity. He's an active person, the executive, in a way, of the Godhead. The Old Testament mentions the Spirit in connection with creation, as we've said, working out God's purposes in history and in the inspiration of God's spokespeople, who were the prophets. The Holy Spirit was nudging them. In the New Testament, we find the Holy Spirit actively engaged with the Son of God throughout his earthly life from the moment he was, as the Creed says, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then we see the Spirit's dove-like descent on Jesus at his baptism and how Jesus consistently claimed that he did all that he did, all the miracles, all the actions by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus claimed the Spirit was his helper. In Hebrews 9.14, it claims that Jesus offered himself in sacrifice for us through the eternal Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit's in the center of the activities of God in the world and all creation. Today, 
the Spirit continues to act as Jesus' agent. He shows Jesus to us through the gospel, unites us to him by faith. He indwells us to change us into his image by causing the fruit of the Holy Spirit to grow in us. Jesus said of the Spirit that, quote, he will glorify not himself, but me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's in John 16, 14. Jesus' words indicate this kind of um, self-effacing character of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit functions uh, sort of like a floodlight that's sort of trained on Christ. So it is Christ, not the Spirit whom we see. And so in the gospel message, Jesus is set before us throughout saying, come to me, follow me. But within our own personal conscience, we, we hear the gospel with a kind of inner ear of faith. But it's actually the Holy Spirit standing behind us in a way, sort of throwing light over our shoulder right onto Jesus. And it's as if the Spirit is the one who's constantly urging, go to him, deal with him, right? So we do. It's the Spirit who is our witness and our teacher. And he convinces us that Jesus of the gospel, the New Testament Christ, really exists and is... Um, is that he he exists for us men and for our salvation, how the Nicene Creed says it. It's also the Spirit who assures us that as believers, we are God's children and that we're heirs with Christ. Romans 8 tells us that. But the Spirit is responsible for more. We know that the early church believed that the Holy Spirit was their source of power for Christian living, that Christianity wasn't just like a religion of human choice but that it demanded something more, something, some kind of participation with the divine uh, nature, that it wasn't just humanly possible. They believed the Holy Spirit was the person, one of the persons of God, but also the person in God who endued the followers of Jesus Christ with power, that somehow when a human being is touched by the Spirit, there's a, a transformation that, that our capacity for loving and our capacity for knowing spiritual things expands. This is described all the way back into the Psalms. It was the psalmist who said in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. There was this idea that the Holy Spirit is who enables us to be steadfast, who enables us to maintain a purity, to, that enables us to sense the presence of God. See, the early Christian believers believe that the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead was at work in their daily lives. In Romans 8, 11, Paul claims, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. They knew of the stories of the spirit animating human beings all through the the Jewish you know, ancient texts, whether it was prophets or priests or kings, these Old Testament stories revealed that there was a transformation that happened when the Spirit fell on human beings. I mean, you can think of numerous stories, but just uh, what comes to mind is like Samuel, or Samson rather, in Judges. This is out of Judges 15. It says, as Samuel, Samson rather, approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in power. And the ropes that were tied on him became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. And finding a fresh 
jawbone of a donkey. He grabbed it and he struck down, the text says, a thousand men. I don't know if this contains any hyperbole or not, but the point is, is it got into the cultural memory of the Jews and into the early Christians that when the Spirit of the Lord comes, things change. Things are different. Humans do stuff that humans don't can't really do or can't usually do. Here's another one. This is out of 1 Kings 18. It says this in verse 44, it says, And the seventh time the spirit, the servant reported, as a cloud, he's speaking to Elijah, as a cloud is a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. And so Elijah said, Go tell Ahab was this wicked king, uh, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. And meanwhile, the sky drew black with clouds and the wind rose and a heavy rain came on as Ahab rode off to Jezreel. He's trying to beat the heavy rain, so he's just booking with this horse. And it says, the power of the Lord, which is synonymous with saying the spirit of the Lord came upon Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So what it's saying is, as the spirit came upon him, he was empowered in such a way that the human being outran a horse and a chariot that's zipping, trying to beat the rain, that Elijah ran faster. <laughs> so somehow the spirit was understood within the memory of the Jews and these early Christians as the glory of God, which is God on parade. Um, Jesus says when he was talking about the things that he did, the miracles he did, one point he's talking about how he was casting out these demons. And this says in Matthew 12 and 28, but if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, in other words, that's the agency, the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So you see what Jesus is saying. He's actually claiming whatever I do, if it's by the spirit then you're seeing the kingdom of God. Every time you and I yield to the Holy Spirit, this is what they thought. Every time, they, every time any Christian person yields to the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God breaks into that person's life. Sometimes that can be a radical change. Sometimes it can be just a gentle shift. I mean, let me encourage you just pastorally to try something like getting home uh, from work and the family, kids, spouse, whatever is in the in the house, and you're kind of burned out and you just want to go on and be a little selfish. I, let me just encourage you to try this. Just stop before you get out of your car and zoom into the house. Just stop and be honest. Say, God, I feel like being a little selfish right now. I'm just a little, you know, burnt at the crisp, burnt to a crisp on in my soul. But Holy Spirit, would you help me? Would you help me with the love and the joy, all this, all this fruit stuff? peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness. Will you help me with just a rise in me? And just that simple call upon the Holy Spirit as your helper, you will be shocked <laughs> at the kinds of ways that your soul gets tempered. This is the miracle called Christianity. It's not a human decision. It's a human decision alone. It's a human decision to be open to the Spirit who is our helper. Helper for what? I think he's the helper to live the Christian life, to help us trust God in different things. I'll never forget, I was in my uh, late 20s one night, and I had been working with this couple in their, in their 70s, and he was dying of cancer, and, and we were trusting, asking God to move and help and heal, and he ended up dying. So it was about a month later after he had died, and I went back up to see her and took her out to dinner. And uh, so we're sitting, I'm sitting with this 75-year-old lady, and uh, for dinner, I'm in my 20s, and we were just talking, and all of a sudden, my head 
started pounding like one of those major disorienting, you know, what's going on headaches in my head. And I remember going into the bathroom and just standing in one of the stalls. And I, I was saying, Lord, I don't have any, I don't have any aspirin. I don't have any Excedrin. I have Tylenol, none of that. And I just put my hands on my head and I said, Holy Spirit, would you help me? Would you please help me to somehow connect with healing for this terrible headache? And all of a sudden, pow, it was completely gone. Now, I mean, it shocked me. And I wish I could tell you, I mean, I've tried to do that dozens and dozens of times with no results in other cases. But for whatever reason, in this moment, uh, I had this sense of the power of God coming upon me. I think the Spirit is present in our lives. Not that we control and direct the Spirit any way we want to, because the Spirit needs to be in control. But I think there are places where He can close the gap in our lives when we need the gap to be closed. I, I think this is true in, in our sense of being uh, a parents, um, good workers. There's a text in Ephesians that talks about being filled with the Spirit. And then the text begins to explicate, you're filled with the Spirit as a singer or worshiper. You're filled with the Spirit as you submit to one another. He starts talking about relationships in the church, relationships in the home, relationships of parents, relationships as employees or employers. And he intimates there that the whole thing needs to be full of the Spirit, that somehow the Spirit will help us simply do what's right. Experiment with that. Call upon the Spirit. The Spirit is present when you're being tempted to make wrong choices. Just ask for help. I mean, if you're being tempted to be an idiot, just say, Lord, I'm being tempted to be an idiot. I really would like to be stupid right now, but Spirit, would you help me? And you'll find out that the Spirit strengthens us in our weaknesses, that the Spirit will help us love when we do not want to, that somehow that He fills in those places where Christianity seems like an impossible thing to live out in our human strength. See, we have, I honestly believe this, that we have just about as much chance to be a Christian in the way that the scripture calls us to be as we can fly. <laughs> I mean, we all know that only Superman can fly, right? In that second Superman movie that came out in the 1980s, uh, that you that are, that are old enough to remember such a thing, Superman took Lo Lois Lane flying with him. And early in the scene, Lois is like clinging tightly to Superman. She refused to even look down because she's freaked out. But as they flew around for a while, Lois starts becoming a little, you know, more confident. And slowly she start, stops clinging so desperately to Superman and she begins to stretch out her own arms, imitating Superman, like thinking, you know, pretending like she can fly. And after a bit, she sort of forgot that her flight was really only possible because of her connection to Superman. So she inches out, out, out further on his arm, shoulders on his arm, all the way to his fingertips. And when she gets to the very tips of his fingertips where all her fingers are, are just on the top of his nails, suddenly she moves over a little too much, loses connection and drops like a stone. <laughs> and Superman in the scene swoops down to catch her, saves her life. The moral of the episode was clear. Only Superman can fly. See, in the arena of faith, only the Spirit can help us fly. There is just no way we will ever be able to pull off divine goodness, ever be able to love consistently the people that make us crazy if we don't have the Spirit. That that This Christian stuff is from another world. I mean, it's true that you can get up real, real high, really, really, really trying to live right and being really, really, you know, hard on yourself and sort of leap into life. And you might have the illusion of flight, but it won't end well.
Only the Spirit can enable Christianity. If you are falling and you're used to falling, getting hit, and thinking you should get up again, mad at yourself or condemned, don't do that. Falling is par for the human race. So discipleship is not about teaching people how to fly. Discipleship is about teaching people how to stay connected to the Spirit. One last thing about the Holy Spirit. By this point in the creed, we've been introduced to the Father, we've been introduced to the Son, and here we're introduced to the Holy Spirit. And all of it is said, Father, Son, and Spirit are central to the Christian faith. It turns out that our faith is Trinitarian in shape. And though the Trinity is jammed with more mystery than practicality, one practical and salient point that we can draw from the Trinity and the concept of the Trinity is that it is the basis. The Trinity is the basis of all human relationships. Our relationship to the world around us, the relationship we enjoy with God, all of it is based on the concept of the community that is rooted in the Trinity. The Trinity is the mystery of God's own life, giving and receiving and sharing in this never-diminished abundance of person within the persons of God. The Trinity shows us God as community, that there's a kind of divine dance going on between Father, Son, and Spirit, and the dance spills out into creation, into us and God, and between us and others. It's a dance of giving and receiving, all made possible by the life-giving Spirit who binds us together in love. And there's certainly lots of mystery here, and it's difficult to put too, or it's tempting to put too fine a point on it. But in some way, humanity is participating in the life of the Trinity. We're called into community, not just as people with individual identities. We do have those, but it's not just that. One of the great themes of the Bible is the unity of the human family. In the Garden of Eden, God makes a man, makes a woman, which is kind of a miniature society imprinted with God's very image. And then the Bible ends up with the, the depictions of a future city where people from every tribe and every tongue will live together in perfect harmony of, of praise. That's in Revelation 7. So we know that God's heart is all about unity and being together. Jesus in John 17 cries out saying, God, may they be one as you and I are one. They may share our glory. So there's a sense at which God wants us to be together, to get along, that something happens when we're us that doesn't happen when we're me. But in the garden, this fall happens. You know, all kinds of discussions about what exactly that was, but this fall brings about a tragic disordering of human relationships. The people in the garden describe this Adam, this Eve, become disordered, and it says that they hid from each other and from God, and that there was accusations that began to fly, and that as a result of a curse, they began to push back against each other. And this curse fractured the relationship between man and woman, as well as between parents and children. The first major problem after that moment was fratricide, brother killing brother Adam, or Cain killing Abel. God's creation had become divided. And each human being sort of became a fragment that uh, was torn loose from the whole that God imagined. The pinnacle of this fragmentation was Babel. Here's where human beings use their collective life 
to mock God and, and the division increased and there was no longer any common world or any kind of movement towards the common good. Post Babel, we see that there was no coherent society. Each group becomes a mere splinter of humanity, all scattered across the cursed earth, exiled, alone. But then, with the coming of Jesus, the scattering of the nations is reversed. And when the Spirit descends on the first followers of Jesus, they all begin to speak in these different languages. Pentecost, we call that. Acts 1, 2. The, the, the multicultural crowd outside of this where the apostles were that were speaking in these languages and these tongues, they were astonished because they heard each one's language being spoken, telling of the greatness of God. And they exclaimed, this is Acts 2, 1 through 13 is where this whole story is told. It says, how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? See, common language reemerges. There's a uniting. This is anti-Babel. Even though they were speaking multiple languages, they were all speaking it together. There was some sense in which everyone heard their own language through what was being spoken. Pentecost was the reversal of the fragmentation that was initiated by the fall and was brought into its fullness at Babel. It was the turnaround of Babel. So the spirit-empowered person is now part of the whole which becomes a new human society in which all the old divisions are torn down. And you see that repeated over and over in the New Testament, how the many are becoming one. And people become open to each other. John writes in 1 John, he says, we know that we have passed out of death to life. Why? Because we love people. He who does not love abides in death. See, this is what happens when the Spirit is present. We move towards each other. We move towards those that we used to want to run from because the Spirit fuses unity while keeping diversity by bringing many gifts together into one body. That's 1 Corinthians 12. Paul notes that the presence of the Spirit does this unity thing in a very specific way. One, the Spirit moves us to a deeper sense of communal belonging while, two, empowering our individuality at the same time. It's so odd. We, we become more truly ourselves as the Spirit broods over us and as our lives then begin to be knit together with each other's lives, with each other's stories. In this way, the Spirit broods over each of Christ's followers and renews the human race one life at a time, drawing all of us into a common family. See, the Spirit fulfills the Creator's original plan by bringing forth a universal community whose boundaries are as wide as the world. And we see it again, like we saw it in creation. The spirit broods over the chaos. This time it's over the chaos of the broken human nature, human beings pushing back from each other. But all of a sudden we began to be drawn together as the spirit lovingly pieces the fragments back together so that we form into the image of the Creator. What I used to think about being in the image of God, I tended to think, me, I've been created in the image of God. But when we remember the sort of the communitarian terms and the Trinity life of God that's used in the language in Genesis, we begin to look at being created in the image of God in more plural terms, not just individual terms, which is in tandem 
in this from this text in Genesis 1. Then God said, this is Genesis 1.26, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock over all the earth and all the creatures that move along the ground. This is very us-centered, we-centered. This simply means that God's image in us is not found solely in the individual human being. It is, but in humans together as we relate to one another. That means that the image of God is seen in me, to be sure, but it is seen in us more than just in me. Basil, he's a great fourth century Cappadocian pastor. He's a, and a social reformer. He explained it like this. He says that the spirit is, quote, like a sunbeam whose grace is present to the one who enjoys it as if it were present to that one alone. Yet it illuminates land and sea and is mixed with the air, end quote. In other words, there is nothing more personal and yet more universal than the Holy Spirit. And now you can see why the creed shifts here to the next statement. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, in the communion of the saints. This is the place where us rises, comes to the fore. And that is where we'll go next time.